was at that moment that I was like, you know what? I got to stop listening to people older than me and start listening to people younger than me. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. And I'm Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. This week, we bring you our interview with renowned cartoonist and, as of last year, television producer Keith Knight. Keith is currently busy writing the second season of Woke, the hit show on Hulu that he co-created and co-produces. Woke follows a cartoonist named Keith Knight, who, after startling assault by a policeman, discovers that inanimate objects start speaking to him. In brutally funny ways, these objects, as well as Keefe's human friends, open his eyes to the social realities his art has yet to address. Clearly, the show is semi-autobiographical, but there's no question that the real Keefe Knight has been socially aware decades longer than his TV namesake. Since the early 1990s, he has been creating razor-witted comic strips, that regularly tackle such issues as systemic racism and police brutality. His work, including the popular comic series The K Chronicles, Think, and The Nightlife, has been seen in media outlets all over the country. In 2007, he received a Harvey Kurtzman Award for The K Chronicles, and in 2010, he received an Inkpot Award for Career Achievement at the San Diego Comic Con. And then in 2015, the NAACP honored him with a History Maker Award in recognition of the impact of his body of work. Keith spoke to us from his home near Chapel Hill, North Carolina. That's right. He lives in our backyard. Mm -hmm. We like that. It was a beautiful spring morning, so his windows were open. And uh, I'm just warning you, you'll be hearing a very insistent backyard bird who'd clearly been dying to make his or her (laughs) podcast debut. We welcome all input, right? Always. I started by asking Keith how he navigated the year 2020 professionally and personally. It's sort of wild because, you know, basically we finished shooting season one by the end of February of 2020. And uh, then we flew home and like a week later, everything just sort of <laughs> shut down. And we were just like, oh my goodness, we we really dodged a bullet. And um you know, there was some transition in doing post-production at home. Like I think all the, the editors had to have the equipment shipped to their homes. And we had to do a lot of post-production where um, the voice talent had to set up stuff at home. You know, they'd have stuff shipped to them that was wrapped in plastic and disinfected. And and then they recorded their their voices at home while they were directed online. And so there were all these type of... It, Things like that. We had to get used to the Zoom room uh, for editing. But yeah, like essentially, you know, we continue to <laughs> get paid. And um, being stuck at home as a cartoonist is sort of what we do anyway. So <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, so I have to just sit at home and, and draw and um and also at the same time, we, we homeschool our kids. So that was already happening. And the boys just, uh, they went out in the back and we have a really cool neighbor who um, was into biking and they, they built a bike track uh, in our yard, in the neighbor's yard. And um, 
you know, the, the, the toughest part was navigating the neighbors who were like, you know, some of them were bent out of shape because our kids were out biking in the back, having a good time. And, uh, you know, they're like, kids are saying, why can't I join them on the bike track, you know? So that was kind of weird. But uh, other than that, it was just, um, we were very, very fortunate. Um, but then the uh, the inciting incident for the first season of Woke is, of course, the uh, a moment of police violence and brutality. And George Floyd was murdered in the spring. So it must have been, uh, how, what was that like to watch these protests erupt when you had already wrapped up your first season? Uh, honestly, I remember calling up everybody uh, being on a group call and saying, you know, our first season is going to play out in front of our eyes uh, over the summer. And um, I just kept on pushing. Like, I think the season was supposed to drop in November. And I said, we have to put this out earlier. It's, it's super important uh, considering everything that's going on. Let's, let's see if we can push them to put it out earlier. And, and thankfully um, they listened to us and uh, they put it out in September. It's interesting. So many uh, journalists asked me like, how did you time this so perfectly? And I, you know, I told, I, I said the same stock answer, which is racism and police brutality is evergreen. If this came out 20 years ago, it would have felt like it was right on time because it would have been like, oh, this is just after this killing uh, or this was after this incident. 10 years from now, it's going to be relevant because the same thing is going to be happening. The, the, the founding of the police, were they were developed from slave patrols poor whites that were hired to keep the black community in check to chase down slaves. This is what the police department does today. And it has not changed. And until we acknowledge that's what it's founded on, then there will be uh, uh, an effort to make fundamental change. But we have to acknowledge that first. I'm sure that that is not taught at the academy. George Floyd, I, I, I think, was a combination of this egregious thing happening, and it could not be denied in any way, shape, or form. But it also was part of most people could not go to work and forget about it. They were stuck at home. They couldn't go, you know, they couldn't go outside and, and get rid of the, the thought of it. They had to stare it in the face. Uh, for a very long time, for not almost nine minutes. And I think then this, you know, this anger, this frustration of being cooped up just burst out onto the streets. And um, I think the success of the show, not as as much to do with that, but also it has to do with, uh, again, people looking for (laughs) content because they probably watched everything they could watch throughout the summer and um, a lot of production shut down. And so there was barely anything new coming out. And so we were just fortunate, you know, with very unfortunate circumstances. In the timing of all that, the, you know, it's clearly for our country, well, hopefully, but um, raising the awareness of the systemic changes that need to happen around racism and about, you know, police behavior and, lots of other things. 
And so it's an interesting point of timing uh, for you, obviously, with the show. I'm curious if you kind of reflect back on your career as an artist. Are, are, have there been other moments or times where you can identify moments of systemic change and kind of what was your experience of it or uh, how did it help or, or uh, create barriers for you in the type of work you do as an artist? No, yeah, certainly so. I mean, I've been doing it long enough to see, like, I remember when I first started out, just when I sent out my comics to newspapers, I had to mail them to the newspapers. I had to make copies and mail them. and, and With a self-addressed <laughs> stamp return envelope, exactly, probably. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And there were times where I had to do a lot of a lot of overnight stamps, uh, overnight packages. So, uh, you know, the internet was this amazing, well, scanning and sending, yeah, was this amazing thing. So, so you know, I, I, I would say Photoshop was a wonderful, great thing to sort of uh, make everything easier, easier with mistakes and, and, and fixing up your comics. Uh, on the computer, but then the internet sending it overnight was this huge thing. But then, of course, <laughs> the internet sort of destroyed uh, the the alt weekly industry. Well, destroyed the newspaper industry, and um, so I was lucky enough to catch the tail end of that. Uh, I would say I was part of the last wave of, of newspaper alt weekly newspaper cartoonists that flourished in the nineties. And um, being in San Francisco at the time, you saw the writing on the wall. So I knew then I had to sort of diversify how I made money. And so that's when I started developing my slideshows. So I started doing slideshow presentations at colleges, at high schools, um, in the workplace. And I realized that like, really like that was, to me, that was the perfect combination of, cause I love performing. I don't like sitting by myself in a hole <laughs> and drawing cartoons. That's why I draw. I draw a lot of my cartoons at cafes because I don't know, the energy of human beings um, sort of helps me write the comics. So doing those slideshows, um, I've been super fortunate to sort of, I, I've always done a lot of, stuff on police brutality and race issues, but... Can you describe a slideshow? So you would get booked to go to a college or essentially booked to do a, a lecture presentation. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's, it, I, I basically call it stand-up comedy with visuals, you know? Um, no one expects me to be funny, because especially with the subject matter. But I realized early on that I had to be funny um, to... Otherwise, it would be a big downer. I mean, my first few slideshows just were brutal. I would just show pictures of, of police brutality victims, and oh, I was I was like, I remember saying halfway through, like, "Oh my god, this is a downer." How, how were you able to dance through that and make it work? Um, you just gotta you gotta make people laugh. You gotta set people up. Um, and so I'd have a few to make people laugh and then I'd punch them in the face and that you, you tickle, tickle, punch, tickle, 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 punch, 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 like, you know, just balance that. And, um, I'm actually doing, uh, I'm doing a slideshow on Friday for the civil rights museum in Atlanta. And that's, that's another big transition is what happens in the time of COVID. And I had always 
thought about developing a, a visual, a virtual slideshow, but we were, I was forced to do it. And, and because of that, I, I've been able to do it for a lot of places that probably couldn't afford to bring me out to where they're at, but, um, you know, pay me enough to do the slideshow. But, um, you know, the very first slideshows I'd show, I do multi, multi-panel comics. And at first I would put the whole comic on a screen um, at the same time. And it was Dave Eggers, the writer, uh, who's a friend of mine, who uh, said to me, he said, you know, you should break those panels up and, uh, and play. And you can, that way you can time them when people are laughing. And uh, I think that was a huge thing because then you can control the pace. So when people are laughing, like just it's all about timing and um, with the humor aspect. Right. And also some people read faster than others. So people would totally. start laughing before others and people feel like they're left out. That's interesting. Totally. Totally. And so that changed everything. And he actually took me on tour. We did this really cool tour called McSweeney's versus They Might Be Giants. <laughs> and so uh, a performer would do their thing and then They Might Be Giants would play a song. It was like They Might Be Giants was the house band. And um, it was really fun. It was really fun. And I was playing like thousand seat. We were playing thousand seat theaters and stuff. So it was really trial by fire, like just uh, doing that. And then it just became easy to do, you know, these whatever thousand or 500 people in a, in a, in an auditorium. You are the, uh, the first cartoonist we've had on the podcast, which is exciting for us, but it also means we know very little about that, how that world works. <laughs> so as you, and you're at this point, you're, I don't want to call you an elder. I don't want to be insulting, but you are oh, a veteran yeah. of veteran, the good industry, words, right? I am so, the old man at the con. <laughs> veterans better than elder. Yes. So as you survey where, because you said uh, in a way you had to come up with a new way to make an income through it and that editorial cartooning was getting close to being moribund. So what, what, needs, what needs to happen so that more talented cartoonists have a way to reach an interested audience? Um, well, you know, the next big transition was when, when newspapers fell apart, like, okay, so you just had to last long enough on the internet to until the internet figured out how to make money. Like what was the, what was the new income way to make money and um, uh, for, for creators, for cartoonists and places like Patreon uh, came to be. And before that there was like mail, like I just remember a bunch of, uh, all weekly cartoonists were like, okay, you know, I'm going to set up a thing on MailChimp. So it's going to be a newsletter and people can subscribe to the newsletter and then they'll get the comic before it hits the papers and some commentary and stuff like that. So we all did that. We all did that. And I still uh, have that. So it's like an advanced zine kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So I, I put together this, this newsletter uh, every few weeks that has, you know, all the cartoons in it, but also commentary, um, where I'll be doing my slideshows and and uh, where you can find them online or interviews and also some behind the scenes photos from woke and different things like that. So people subscribe that way, but also Patreon came about and Patreon. I remember, I remember there, there was this moment where there was in, in DC, there was a convention of, editorial cartoonists and I was super excited to go. I was like, Oh man, I'm going to learn all this stuff from 
from my elders, right? <laughs> and so I walk into the lobby where everyone's, you know, having drinks and all these older guys come over to me and they say, Keith Knight, how do you do what you do? Because we're all getting fired from, we're all getting laid off from our jobs that we've had for 25, 30 years. I don't even know how to do Photoshop. Like they, they would just draw their cartoons, give it to an assistant. And that was it. And suddenly they had to find, they found themselves scrambling, scrambling to figure out this new paradigm. And I was just like, Oh no, like (laughs) they're turning to me. Like, so it was at that moment that I was like, you know what? I got to stop listening to people older than me and start listening to people younger than me. <laughs> and that was a huge thing. That was a huge thing. And I just remember someone telling me about Patreon. She's like, Keith, you know, I think this is something that you'd really be, you know, would really be good at. And, um, and Patreon had just started. And so I signed up right away. But the wild thing is, is I signed up right away and didn't do anything with it. I just, you know, I signed up and that was it. But then like three or four months later, I saw somebody was making like $9,000 a month on it. And I was like, oh no, I was like, are you kidding me? But the difference was they weren't doing political cartoons. Like they weren't alienating, you know, half the audience. So I I knew I couldn't do that. I knew I couldn't do $9,000 a month, but I knew that I could make up for a lot of the papers that I I had lost. And so I went, I got to it and um, it's been a a godsend. Like it's as close to a universal basic income for an artist as uh, you can get without, uh, without something being a blatant universal basic income, which uh, places are starting to do now, uh, like San Francisco, places like San Francisco. So I think I have like oh, close to 700 supporters and it's $3,500 a month. And so that's, you know, that's been such a, a, a wonderful thing. And, and they're always, I think they, they see my success as like one of the things that they want to put forward. <laughs> so they're always asking me to do other things that is oh, you mean Patre- patreon or your support patreon patreon i see which is great because it brings in more that you know the high profile things that they have me do i pick up more supporters and and it provides more opportunities but it was that move on patreon and also also i i my wife and i moved from san francisco to la like like i just i was like i have to develop i have to go try to get this developed for television. That was the big thing to leave San Francisco after 16 years. But I just felt like I was getting that feeling. We were, you know, I was in my apartment for like for 15 years and we had great rent control. And I just had this bad feeling of, of me turning into the bitter, angry old San Franciscan. I was like, man, you know, the city used to be cool before all the tech people came, you know, that type of thing. So, um, so we got out and I think it was the best move as much as I love the city now, always love the city and feel like it's as much a home to this day as, as it was when I was there. But I just felt like I had to leave it to to succeed. 
and especially Los Angeles, you you have to be there. Even even though I didn't get the deal until I moved to North Carolina, you had the, you have to put in the time there, the schmoozy time, <laughs> to meet people and figure out who is gonna work for you and you have to make mistakes and do all that stuff that's when i felt like when we left to move to north carolina i felt comfortable like going okay you know the project the idea for the project it's in good hands what's that experience like keith for other cartoonists who may be thinking about broadening themselves what's the what was that pivot like for you from the the routine you'd gotten comfortable with to suddenly, you know, moving into the television world? It was, it's really interesting because there's a couple of things that, that set me up for it, which is I was in a band when I was in San Francisco and being in a band and being a cartoonist was such a great balance because you, being a cartoonist, you do everything by yourself, right? The, the idea, you develop all this different stuff and blah, blah, blah. It's your complete control. Being in a band, you come in with an idea and there's all these other entities that take that idea and they do, hopefully they take it and they, they add to it and make it something that you just couldn't imagine, like couldn't have done by yourself. And hopefully you just truly dig it. And uh, I think that's what working on a television show is like which is you come up, you have these particular ideas of what you want it to be like, but then all these people add so much more to it that it becomes far more interesting than you could ever make it. And so it was a wonderful experience. You know, sometimes it's tough to sort of, especially in the writer's room when people are suggesting things and, you know, you but you got to, you know, you got to let those things come out but um you know it's 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 tough when <laughs> you know the characters named after you and right being and you know there's a lot of therapy that that needs to happen after all this is done but it was just an ama- amazing experience the director of Mel, uh mo marable who's just amazing came in and said like i don't think the animation should be 2d i think it should be like of the world it should be puppetry and all this different stuff he brought like the seru- you know, surreal take on stuff, which I think was just made, it was the special sauce that really elevated the project. And then the, what the actors brought to it was amazing. And then the music, like I, I helped work on the music with the co-creator Marshall Todd. And, but we worked with Issa Rae's company um, called Radio. And they were just really great at like, we really wanted to, just have all types of music in it. And they were just great at what they brought to it. Stanley Clark did, you know, uh, created music for it too. And I wanted to have a hand in a lot of the stuff. So I was, you know, in the writer's room. Um, I was on the sets. I did a lot of the artwork for the show and did, uh, picked out costumes and picked locations. And so just every aspect of it. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to know all about it. My management was telling me, like, just learn how to do all of it uh, or just or observe it because this is what you want to do is you want to be you want to produce this stuff. So it was just a a wonderful experience. And and my advice to cartoonists is hold on to the rights of your stuff. 
there was a big moment. This is another transitional moment. It's I had an early development deal with Nickelodeon, and my first publisher was saying, well, they have to come through me. They have to make a deal through me, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, ooh. And um, after that experience, I just I just went to them and said, like, I want the rights to my, my work back. Um, and I, it was a lot of going back and forth and a lot of negotiation. And so I basically bought my rights back, uh, 20 years ago. And, um, and that wow, way. Cause that's something that Keith in the series actually, at least in the first season doesn't get to do. Yeah. And I think uh, he loses control of his material. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think that's going to bite him in his, in his rear end at some point. <laughs> so you know that 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 I think that's really the difference is sort of the character is sort of the Charlie Brown of activism. So he's trying to do the right thing, but he's screwing up the whole way. And I think that's the thing that sort of makes him the character that the audience goes on the trip with. And so there'll be a lot more of that in season two. He has guts. Guts. Serious guts. Because his career is yeah, starting to finally go guts. somewhere. Yeah. And then he takes off to the East Coast. Yeah. Know? I mean, his career his career has been has been going. It's just now he's reaching a much larger audience yes. than I guess maybe he has. Yes. But it's guts. I mean, he's had guts in terms of the subject of his art, of course. He, unlike his counterpart in the TV series, he didn't, you know, start his career by just doing easy, entertaining art. His art was always provocative. But what's amazing is that he's continued to provoke himself in how to manage his professional life and, uh, and has, you know, taken himself outside of his comfort zone to find new ways to get his work out there. And he's really, in doing so, changing, I think, the idea of what his industry is and what it can be what it should be, how it's seen. Uh, you know, it's really hit this mainstream, more popular level. And he's still, I think, very, uh, in, in doing so, still committed to his core roots of social justice and speaking out and speaking up. So he, he's maintained yeah. that core while evolving. The other thing I love is when he talks about how having been in a band was kind of crucial to his development as an artist because as a cartoonist, he could have just right. chosen to work alone. But there was something about being in a collaborative artistic space like a band that uh, gave him the tools to go on a TV set and feel mm-hmm. more comfortable. And it just reminds me that it might be a good thing for any artist who works solo, whether a novelist or a painter, to find ways to engage with other like-minded artists, because you never know where the next great idea will come up through some kind of a friction or just crazy mm-hmm. collaboration. Yeah, agreed. If you'd like to learn more about Keith and read a longer version of this interview, please visit uncsa.edu slash artrestart. And if you enjoyed this interview, please let us know by leaving us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. If you know of an inventive artist changemaker in your community that you think we should feature in the podcast, please let us know. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at PC Talenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project, and I'm Rob Kramer. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>